welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to Andrew Hunter-Murray. Andrew's a writer and comedian and is one of the QI elves working behind the scenes for the BBC show QI. He's also one of the co-hosts of the spin-off podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, which involves Andrew and the team chatting about their favourite facts and has been downloaded more than 300 million times since it started in 2014. Andrew also writes for Private Eye magazine and hosts the Eye's in-house podcast, Page 94. In his spare time, he performs in the Jane Austen-themed improv comedy group, Ostentatious. His debut novel, The Last Day, was published in 2020 and is out in paperback on the 18th of February. Andrew, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited about having you on here today. And I always get a little bit of imposter syndrome when I'm chatting to people that do podcasts. Well, no, that's the nice thing. There's no there's no need for imposter syndrome with podcasts because pretty much everyone is definitely an imposter in this world. <laughs> there are no qualifications for entry, which is the lovely thing about it. I know, it's kind of bonkers, isn't it? You get a microphone and you sit at your computer and you just start talking and then just hope that somebody will listen to it. It's great, yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. I was a fairly late adopter to podcasts, but I went traveling for a year before I took on my shop and I subscribed to two podcasts. One of them was Desert Island Discs, of course. And the other one was No Such Thing as a Fish. Oh. So um, it's brilliant to chat. Maybe I can get some tips off you later. Yeah, absolutely. That's very good company to be in. So with all my guests, I like to go back to your childhood. You grew up in London and I understand you enjoyed books from a really early age. What do you remember about reading as a child? Just the insatiable need to read more. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from, but I remember being... It's unbelievably hard not to use the word voracious in relation to reading. I know the word voracious is only ever, usually only applied to readers in polite conversation anyway but I just wanted more books and I remember going back and forth to the library quite strong Matilda vibes but without ever developing any of the telekinetic powers sadly strange and yeah I know we had this gorgeous old Victorian library it was a I think Hammersmith and Fulham library um they had the, the whole council had this one beautiful building an amazing children's section I can't remember any of the specific books I spent about half an hour the other day trying to remember one particular book I remember the plot I remember the cover I just don't remember the <laughs> name of it and I'm stubbornly waiting I'm not going to ask online I'm going to try and search it out in my memory so that was the early memory of reading just discovering these wonderful new worlds and and needing to get into them ASAP it's really lovely talking to people about books through this podcast because consistently I hear time and time again how people got introduced to books through their local library and it just reinforces that message doesn't it that we all know people that love books all know how important libraries are today as as important as they were you know 20 30 years ago but um I just like to hear that message time and time again because there's nothing quite so magical when you're a child than going to sit in a library and just having all that Mm. choice yeah absolutely God, I just sparked another memory. I was actually a child librarian. Oh, uh, <laughs> the um, my school had a library, and you could volunteer there. And um, it came with a small red badge with a uh, little gold lettering picked out saying "librarian." That was 
very exciting to me. So, That's so yeah. cool. God, I'd completely forgotten that until right now. Yeah. <laughs> you say there's one book you know you can remember reading, but you can't remember the title. Is there anything that you vaguely remember at that time? Well, the first really strong memory is of the Redwall series of books, which are, uh, for anyone who doesn't know them, they're children's books by Brian Jakes, Jacks possibly. Um, and the first book is called Redwall, which is about it's a it's a monastery which is run owned and operated by mice who are the monks uh, who run the monastery and there is an invading army of rats which lays siege to the monastery and you get an incredibly exciting story of you know a battle between good and evil mice and rats um and it's just it's completely wonderful it's one of those things which as a child as a child you just accept you know you just accept the reality of this world describing it to you as a grown-up it feels mad talking about it but it it all absolutely makes sense you know the the snake asmodeus of course there's a snake hiding in a burrow outside the monastery which matimio the the hero has to go and defeat and so yeah that series was a huge influence on me my my dad read those books to me when i was a little boy and it was wonderful discovering them discovering more in the series that was a huge moment yeah how did you find out about them there was a sale of books at my school and i sort of i think i don't know the library was changing its stock around and so there were all people were bringing in secondhand books and a teacher of mine mr harvey said to my mum i think andrew might like this book a really nice personal recommendation and clearly he could tell that i was interested in reading it so he you know looked out for me in that moment and and made a recommendation which sparked a you know a wonderful journey that i, I was reading his books for years after that and that's the the wonderful thing, especially when there's a series of books for people to discover. Suddenly, this new tunnel opens up, and you know, if you if you certainly read Patrick O'Brien's first book, and you think, "My God, there are twenty of these!" <laughs> you just know there's this glorious vista stretching ahead of you, a, a, a tunnel unlike any other series of books that you can travel along at your leisure. So, yeah, I owe Mr. Harvey a great deal of thanks for that recommendation. I love the fact that you still remember his name. That's such a great thing, the teacher that introduced you to your first group. It's the chief memory of him as a teacher is the time he recommended a book. And there's that lovely saying that all you need to do is in educating children is to teach them to read and then leave them alone and everything else is indoctrination. I can't remember who said that, but it's true. yeah, he got that one right. Yeah. So am I right in thinking that from that point on you were hooked and, and books became a permanent fixture in your life? Yeah, definitely. All the way through to apparently working as a child librarian. I'm really trying to remember what my actual duties were there. Was it just reshelving? Was it? I mean, there was a, there was a grown up supervisor of the library. Can't recall at all. But there we go. Yeah, but from then on, yes, absolutely, very much a, a fixture. We go into schools quite a lot. Well, in normal times, we go into schools quite a lot. And um, some mm. of our local high schools have got the kid librarians. And I have always been a little bit jealous. And out talking to you, it just makes me want to regrets. It wasn't, if it's any consolation, it wasn't quite the social cachet that it didn't provide the social cachet <laughs> that I'm now trying to desperately gloss it with after the fact. <laughs> in fact it was probably the exact opposite to that, uh, that yeah time. but you know you liked it so it was good so i've got a theory that people who read books have a book that changed their life in some way had um some kind of influence on them that could be professional it could be personal and it could be something that it was because of the content they read or just because the book just happened to speak to them at that time in that place do you have a book like that yes i think this was the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which um we had an old copy of my parents must have bought it soon after it came out, which was the late seventies, I guess. And it just must have stayed there on the shelf until I discovered it about 
um, I don't know, 15 years later, uh, maybe 20 years later. But I I loved it instantly. The copy is completely falling apart, and I, I think I've nicked it from them. I've still got it on my shelf. Mm-hmm. But that was, again, a complete revelation in terms of the you know the weirdness that you could uh, fit into a book. Douglas Adams is so good at fitting so many extra stories into a book around the main plot um, and herring off down a rabbit hole only to then return to the you know the adventures of Arthur and so on. So that probably laid a lot of the ground for my future reading and and probably for the the work I wanted to do. I mean getting into comedy was always something I dreamed of from a young age but never really imagined possible and that's one of the things that made me dream of it. Oh see I was going to ask you about that because his writing is clearly extremely funny and clearly the work you do is all in that world. Mm. So you say you always wanted to get into the world of comedy. When did you actually decide that it was something you thought you'd be able to do? It was when I got to university. I joined a, a comedy group called the the Oxford Imps. They did improvised comedy. And before that, I had entertained no serious ideas about working in comedy. I just assumed I would go to university and then... Well, there was a bit. There was a big gap after university where I did not have any clue as to what I wanted to do. That should have been some kind of indication to me that <laughs> I was possibly looking for something else. But you know, the gap just sort of stayed there. And occasionally, I'd try and fit um, a piece I had heard about. You know, whether it was I don't know, trying to study law or something. I guess I'd try and fit a piece in into the gap ahead of me. And it kind of fit, but only if I didn't examine it too closely. But when I got to university and started performing comedy with this group, I then started thinking about it properly and that from then on yeah i was kind of determined i managed to try and not have a plan b so that there was if i managed to make myself completely unfit for anything else there was no way really i could not end up doing comedy that was how i reasoned it to myself so you left university having done that and fast forward to the present day you now live and work in london and you're one of the qils which i think must be one of the coolest jobs in the Mm. world how did you get from leaving university thinking i want to get into comedy to where you are now I got really, really lucky, and I met uh, John Sessions, the now very sadly late uh, great John Sessions, who who died just last year. A friend of mine introduced me to him. He was coming to the university to do a, a talk about his life and his work, and my friend was having to look after him for the evening, and she said, oh, well, you're also an improviser. That was obviously uh, one of John's things, was doing great shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? And he did his own solo improv shows. She said, why don't you come along and, and hang out with John Sessions? And I mean, I jumped at the chance, of course. Wow. And then, yeah, I know. <laughs> what an opportunity. And thanks to that bit of blind luck, you know, he, he asked me what I was planning to do. And I sort of hemmed and hawed and didn't, he could ascertain that I didn't really have any idea. <laughs> and he, he introduced me to, um, to John Lloyd, who is the producer and inventor of QI, not to mention every other uh, great comedy show that's been made in Britain in the last few decades so john gave me a bit of work experience at qi and and it all went from there and that work experience stint has now lasted for 12 and a half years <laughs> i know i'm hoping to get paid one day i'm really looking forward to that yeah that would be good yeah <laughs> so and that's it yeah it was and it was completely through the good fortune of you know being on the improv scene um my friend happening to want someone to come and hang out with john sessions and uh and his generosity in, in introducing me to Lloydie. Oh, isn't that funny how just that one thing, you know, if you hadn't gone out for that evening. I know, I know. I think about it quite a lot. Yeah. And for anyone who hasn't heard of the QI elves who's, you know, buried in a cave somewhere, because 
quite frankly, <laughs> hear a lot about the QA What does your job involve exactly? It's never been made clear to me. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just being silly. Of course it has. Um, so we are the, the people who, and our numbers vary over the year. So when we're actively writing the next series of QI, as we are at the moment, there are more of us. And then when we're outside series time, there are slightly fewer of us. But we are the people who find out the facts that go into the show. We find the facts, we check the sources, we write the questions up in a way that we think the panel will be able to have fun with when it gets to the show itself. And we send these scripts over to to Sandy, the host, and she will have her own thoughts about them, send them back. So it's a very collegiate way of working. We're all working together, one letter of the alphabet at a time, because the series is in alphabetical order. So uh, the R series is just going out at the moment. And that will have shows about Rome and rodeos and Rwanda and whatever begins with R. That's the target for this series. And then we move on to S. It's interesting because QI is one of these exceptional shows where the beginning, the show was what it was. But over time, the QI elves have become as much of a thing as the show itself. I think the success of the podcast and the fact that you guys have had successful books, you went on tour with your podcast. It's really lovely to have seen that kind of evolving. Yeah. Were you expecting that when you got involved in the show or were you just expecting to be behind the scenes? No, not at all. I mean, I joined in 2008 and we didn't start doing a podcast until 2014. So mm. no, it was something that I think Dan and James, who are two of the other podcasters, they were the ones who were working away at the idea of doing a podcast in in some form. The thing is, we do find so many facts for the show that never go anywhere. I mean, we have these talk boards where we post up all the research we've been doing. Only about one fact in 10, I'd say, ends up being actually broadcast in on QI proper. So we thought, you know, why don't we try recording a conversation where we're just talking about our favourite extra facts, things that may not be actually getting into the show, but that we want to tell people about. And that's really where it started from there. And unfortunately, now, after seven years nearly of doing the podcast, we have a lot of extra facts that we haven't managed to get into the podcast. So we don't know where we put those. We'll have to find a new format. I think it's probably going to be a TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) What I love about the podcast is there's this constant competition between all of you about who's got the best facts. Is that actually genuine? (laughs) It's genuine and it's acted. I mean, we all like finding out what the others have found out. That's really fun. But obviously, we also all want to say a fact that the others go wow to in response. So the friendship is genuine, but so is the rivalry (laughs) to come up with the best fact. (laughs) So you also work for Private Eye and you host Page 94, Mm -hmm. the podcast associated with Private Eye as well. All the work on both of those podcasts, Mm. Page 94 and No Such Thing as a Fish, are extremely topical. So I guess my question is, how has what's happened in the last year, the pandemic, the lockdown, how has that impacted what you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, I don't get out much. That's the principal impact, I would say. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of carrying along as it did before. I mean, Private Eye, we've been working from home. We're almost exclusively working from home. And QI, we're able to do our research. Really, all we need is an internet connection plus time to do the the work. So things have been carrying on. And as we said at the beginning about podcasting, there's actually no way to stop someone making a podcast unless you take away their internet connection. So we are going to be still broadcasting, uh, hopefully for a good long while yet. Good. Glad to hear it. Is that the question that you were asking? Was it it sort of how, how the news has affected us just generally i mean both how is it impacted you on a day-to-day basis but also i mean i guess yeah there is that question as well is because i guess the content's become very specific and very related to coronavirus but i'm assuming that it hasn't all become about that because there's been a lot of other good stuff going on this year hasn't it yeah absolutely and i think the nice thing about the eye is that it it keeps the focus or rather it keeps 
the areas we're interested in broad. And that's partly because there are so many stories that, that our correspondents have been writing about for years and stories and scandals that rumble on for years. Mm-hmm. And partly because these things don't stop mattering just because there is another big story. Obviously, the focus of the magazine has changed a bit. So now our, our medical correspondent, MD, writes a lot more than he used to up front in the magazine. And that's been fascinating to read. And it's very nice reading something which is so clear and sensible in a time like this at the start of the magazine. But you have to keep covering all the other stuff. You have to keep covering dodgy souvenir shops, which might be a tax fraud. And you have to keep covering farmed salmon in Scotland and and how that's um, getting out of control and damaging local salmon populations and all these other you know myriad stories that have been in the eye. So it's good to keep on reminding people of these things too, especially in the joke pages as well. Yes. So in the shop, we found that during this time, a lot of people are turning to books. We had a massive surge in book sales during lockdown and you know, it's kind of continued. Have you found that you're reading more or less through this lockdown period? I can tell you exactly because I keep a spreadsheet of how many books I've read. <gasps> oh, <laughs> you've just combined my two favourite things, books and spreadsheets. Ah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really nice to look back at the end of a year and think, oh yeah, I read um, Cider with Rosie. I don't know if you find this, but when I think of a book I've read, particularly if I've read it somewhere unusual, I get a strong sense of the location I was reading it. Particularly books, if you if you read a book on holiday, mm-hmm. if you think of that book afterwards, it's kind of tied to the holiday in your memory. You can picture the beach or the or the armchair at the hotel where you were reading it or whatever it might be. And so that's a nice thing to do at the end of the year is to look back. There hasn't been a lot of variation in where I've been reading over the last year, obviously, <laughs> but I've been reading roughly the same amount, which is not an especially interesting answer. But I've been trying to knock off a classic or two each year. So last year, I finally tackled uh, Middlemarch for the first time oh, wow. and loved it. Oh, I'd had a copy for ages, just sitting there, sort of, you know, glaring at me from the shelf, and really enjoyed it. I thought it was fabulous. What was the most recent book you read? Can I tell you the book I'm reading? Yes, because that is bang up to date. So that I'm reading an Edith Wharton at the moment. It's the Custom of the Country. I'm only about a quarter of the way in, but it's about a young woman called Undine Sprague. Incredible name. Brilliant name. So she and her parents are in New York at the turn of the 20th century, and they've just arrived from the Midwest. She, Undine, is is a young, very beautiful woman trying to break into high society and trying to marry advantageously. And I don't know whether she manages to or not, because I'm only a quarter of the way through. But it's brilliant. Edith Wharton is absolutely fabulous. Um, She's so good at writing about human emotion. It's highly recommended so far. I actually haven't read any of Edith Wharton's books, which probably makes me a bad bookseller. Not a bit. No, no. What is it that makes them so appealing to you? What is it? So I started with The House of Mirth, which is about a a young woman who... um, uh, again, very good looking. Seems to be a bit of a theme developing with Wharton here. But it's about a young woman who <laughs> is slowly running out of options uh, of who to marry. And after a, a youth she has enjoyed, she is now realizing that she has to marry someone in order to secure her future financially. And that's a situation that obviously was, you know, much more the case at the time, which Wharton returns to, I think, over and over again. But the brilliance with which Wharton draws the character of Lily in the book The House of Mirth and the the pathos, the complexity, the small movements people make which reveal their inmost selves. All of it is just so beautifully drawn. And Wharton was also showing her readers a life that 
almost all of them wouldn't be able to afford an extremely high society life in New York around that time. Yeah, she has a lot of the same brilliance of Jane Austen, I think, in terms of chronicling Mm. human behavior, which is extremely important for a book, I think. And like you said earlier on, as a child, it was always really nice finding a series you like, but it's the same magic, isn't it, if you find an author that you just really enjoy their book. Absolutely, yeah. Obviously, you read a lot for your job. Mm. I mean, as you say, a lot of that probably online um, rather than in books. Do you find it difficult to carve out the time to read for pleasure? I mean, you clearly read a fair amount for pleasure. Is that something you actually have to make a conscious decision to do or does it happen quite organically? Yeah, I think you always do have to carve out the time. It's, I mean, it's weird because reading is the thing I like doing most and yet I have to carve out the time to do it. And I think that's because the appeal of just blankly staring at your phone is also very great in this day and age. And um, <laughs> All of these incredible systems that have been precision engineered to draw our attention are actually pretty good at doing it. But I do find that if I just say, no, hang on, you picked up your phone 10 minutes ago, just put it back down again, pick up the book and spend half an hour reading, that half an hour will often turn into an hour. And then suddenly you've made a a great dent in the customer of the country or whatever you're reading. And um, you feel kind of nourished by the experience. So yeah, it's one of those virtuous habits i think that's nonetheless quite difficult to uh, to keep reminding yourself of right we've been talking about books talking about lots of different books we should probably talk about your book let's talk about your book oh sure um, okay so your debut novel yeah. the last day was published in 2020 uh, just before the pandemic hit in earnest so it's been out for a little bit but it's out and paid back on the 18th of february for anyone that hasn't read the book or come across it yet oh, how would you describe it uh i would say it's a thriller Almost an adventure, actually. A thriller set in a world like our own a few decades from now uh, with one enormous change. And the enormous change that's happened is that the rotation of the Earth has gradually slowed down to a halt. Due to a catastrophe in the skies above us, the planet's rotation slows and slows and slows over a period of about a decade. And now, at the time the story begins, half the world is constantly facing inwards towards the sun, and half is facing outwards uh, towards the cold, frozen universe. And that's the initial premise of the book. And really, it's, it's a thriller set in that world, charting how the world fell apart, how Britain has just about kept it together. Britain's one of the lucky countries that is still sunlit, but not baking hot. So it's in this kind of Goldilocks zone. And the story's about a young scientist trying to get to the heart of an important truth in this new world. That's a long elevator pitch. I'm sorry about that, Sarah. It's far too long. <laughs> long <laughs> elevator journey. We were going up a lot of floors. Yeah, yeah. The premise of the book's great. I'm always slightly in awe of anyone who writes fiction about where you come up with these ideas, because that's just completely out there where did the idea come from of the world just stopping and that being the premise of it it's really hard to say i don't know if other authors you've spoken to have have identified this but i'd been writing for a while i'd been writing short stories for a while wanting to write something longer i had been looking for an idea kind of consciously and subconsciously but one day walking along the street i'd been visiting some family i was walking back to the station and i honestly stopped stopped dead in the street where I was because the image of the world hanging in space, kind of frozen in position, you know, one side always facing towards the sun, that image just occurred to me. And I'm not even sure I knew it was an idea for a book at the time. I just thought, I wonder what would happen if, if that happened, what would happen to, to the environment and to geopolitics how would countries start reacting to each other in a world where suddenly this huge thing has changed 
I'm a really big fan of books which change one thing. I don't know if you're a fan of The Power by Naomi Alderman. Amazing book. Brilliant, brilliant book where, you know, women effectively gain the physical upper hand over men. A mutation means that they're able to, how can we say it, zap, blast other people. And that book wonderfully charts the slow process by which society is completely upended by this change. So I've I've always loved books like that. And I think I slowly realized that this could be a book in which that happened too. Um, we saw the the slow ramifications happening from this one big shift. So you said that you'd thought about writing a book because obviously you were doing short stories. Had it always been your goal to try and write a novel or was it just something that evolved as your stories got longer and longer? Oh, I think so. I think I wanted to write a novel from a, a, a really young age, but it's one of those things where I, <laughs> I was about to say there are no books to tell you how to do it. That's wrong. There are thousands of books telling you how to do it. And I'd read some of those books and I'd read books about the writing process, but there was always something that didn't quite get through to me from them, I suppose. I think those books can tell you a lot, a lot of really great things about the process of writing a novel, maybe apart from the main thing. And I'm not even clear what that main thing is, but I definitely felt that I wasn't ready until I had uh, this idea. And then I thought, yes, this this could be something. Once you got the idea, was it a case of head down, pen to paper, get on with it? Did it just suddenly start happening then? Or was that a light bulb moment that happened? And then, you know, two years later, you started to think about actually making it into some kind of novel? No, I went straight to a local cafe and I, I started making notes. But initially, yeah. I started writing just practical notes about what would happen to the world if this happened. Um, firstly, could this happen? You know, how do planets' rotations change over time? So I, I had a couple of friendly astrophysicist friends who were very useful in the course of the research. So I just went away and did a lot of homework, really, about how this could happen. I didn't have any characters. I didn't have a plot. But gradually, after a few months of this, I, I really was enjoying the world. I enjoyed living in it and spending time there. And so I thought, yes, this is this is now the world that I want to build the story in. And so that came second, but it was pretty, pretty constant from then on. I was going to ask you, because one thing that jumped out at me immediately when I started to look into you and what you do day to day is you're a very busy person. So as I said, you've got a couple of podcasts, you work on um, Private Eye, you work on the TV series, but you also do the improv as well. And there's plenty of other stuff as well. I missed a whole load of stuff off the <laughs> intro that I could have included. How on earth did you fit this in with everything else that you've got going on? Uh, with difficulty is the honest answer. <laughs> um, I tried to I tried to have a set time every day before the working day started where I was devoting my my thought to this. And I'm definitely not one of those uh, amazing Californian yogi types who who get up at 4:30, have a bit of meditation, a bit of a smoothie and then, you know, have cleared their inbox by 5am. <laughs> I don't do that at all. I, it is <laughs> always a struggle to get up early enough to have the proper time to devote to it. And it was a it was a stumbling process. So it, it was a it was a halting process. I don't want to pretend it was just gravy all the way through. You know, I think I I even gave up once or twice when I just couldn't see my way through particular plot points, and then went back to it and thought, no, there must be a way through here. So it's a gradual thing, and it's very strange because with your first book, there's no one to really tell you that this is a good idea. Um, if you've written a book before, then maybe you can look back and see, well, I've done it before, I can do it again. But it's a, it's a weird process. This just chipping away at nothing, trying to produce something at the end of it and not really being clear whether anyone's going to be interested. You know, The moment where a, a, a publisher or an agent first takes an interest and it goes from being a Word document to being a, a potential book or a book in waiting is 
absolutely magical and unbelievable. And that's almost the biggest shift it goes through, you know, because before that, you're just somebody with a Word document. It's interesting because we were talking before we started recording about um, who we had on the podcast before and one person we talked about was Ian Dunt, who I know Mm. you know. And when I was chatting to him about how he wrote, I talked to him about a couple of other people that talked about writing in a similar way to you. So getting up a little bit earlier and writing in the morning. And I've never heard anyone laugh quite so loudly (laughs) for quite so long as Ian did because the thought of him (laughs) doing that, he said, was just the complete opposite. He said, I can't function before 10 a.m. It's just really interesting talking to different authors about their different approaches because there's there's no right or wrong way of doing it, is there? It's just about making it fit into what you're doing and what kind of life you're living at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the pure single-mindedness of I must get it done if I want to do this I've got to keep doing it yeah there is a weird moment where you might stop writing for a bit and think oh gosh this is really difficult and you you kind of look around and think there's no one going to help with this Um, (laughs) and before you send it off to anyone you know you have to do the initial stuff yourself which is not to say that makes it sound you know that's very much a kind of auteur-esque uh, view of the author in reality i found the process so much more collaborative than i think most readers get the sense of certainly than it's more collaborative than i got the sense of um before i i wrote anything because there are so many people who are, who are interested you will send it to friends who will have thoughts and you'll you know editors will have brilliant suggestions about it designers and yeah all kinds of people will chip in and that's not a harmful thing or a shameful thing. It's useful and it's good. I remember going to a publishing house probably about two years ago where they did a presentation for a bunch of indie mm. bookshop owners and they showed us the process mm. of designing the front cover of a book, which I'd never mm. really thought about that before. Although obviously I've always appreciated how amazing the front cover of a book is and how important it is. But actually talking to somebody who did it as a consumer, you don't ever really think about that. And there's all this work that goes on. Like you said, there's this whole team and it's just, it's so lovely. It must be so nice to be able to see it all come together. Yeah, it's amazing. And I I really like this new trend that's started recently of books having uh, basically a credits list in the back. I think that's a lovely acknowledgement of all the work that goes into it. I think publishers are often such basically modest, nice people that they want to say, oh, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry, you know, it's, <laughs> don't forget about that. And so you, they leave it up to the author to decide how many people to thank in the acknowledgements. And the author can either be very diligent and thank everyone or just thank the cat. And that's it. And so I think it's a good, <laughs> I think that's a very pleasant trend to say to people, hey, a huge number of people have put work into this. So you better enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. You better love it. So your book's coming out, the paperback's coming out on the 18th of February and there's obviously going to be work around that. But what are your plans in the publishing space for the rest of this year? Do you have any? Oh, lots. I've been working on the second novel, that difficult second novel. (laughs) And that has been the big project of the last year. And it's a kind of almost a cousin work to the last day it's set in a similar kind of version of a slightly wrecked britain but it's a it's a different story you know the world is still spinning in this one huge relief but it definitely shares dna with the last day it's about a world that's on the brink of large change and how individual people react within that world what a vague elevator pitch but there we go isn't it Mm. Oh, that's so exciting, though. Second book, that's so great. I hope that I'm hoping everything goes well. I mean, I'm sure the the paperback publication will go extremely well for the last day, and I hope that everything goes well with your 
follow-on project. It's been so, so lovely talking to you today. I feel though as though I've been kind of somehow transported into one of my favourite podcasts. All I need to do now <laughs> is come up with some kind of interesting fact. Yeah. Oh, is it, there must be some facts set in uh, in a bookshop. Some remarkable things have happened in bookshops, I'm sure. I'm sure there are. And what I maybe should do is just like splice something onto the end is my QI-esque fact. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Mano, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and best of luck with the paperback publication of The Last Day. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much, Sarah. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us. So as promised, here is my QI style fact about books. Did you know that old copies of Mills and Boone novels were used to help build the M6 toll? Apparently, two and a half million of the classic romantic novels were pulped and used within the top layer of the motorway. Who knew? Thanks to Joe Coldwell from Red Lion Books for that fact.